So this morning we're going to continue our, uh, our, our ministering to you on the book of 1 Peter. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 today. And uh, you know, these are some, like I told you before, the, the Peters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, they're some of my favorite books in the Bible because it's just, it's just jam-packed of stuff that makes an impact in your life. It's full of promises and how to live your life. And it's really incredible the impact these books can make in your life. These two chapters that we're going to look at today primarily deal with, with godly living, how to live a godly life, <clears throat> and how to live it with a godly attitude. What's the attitude we're supposed to have? How are we supposed to behave in this world? Really, not only with, with other believers, but as other uh, non-Christians and leaders in this world. Now, <clears throat> the reason he's preaching this to people is, is in the, the Roman Empire at the time, as people are getting saved, Christians are experiencing a freedom in Christ that they've never experienced before. And the problem is, is, is that people are, 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 are mislearned in this area. They're kind of taking advantage of this freedom in Christ. And Peter's saying, no, we still have to live good lives. Just because you're free doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. There's a, there's a difference <clears throat> in that area there. And he talks about it. He also begins to talk about uh, <clears throat> how our lives can be used to influence others. Our lives are actually an open book for what we believe. How we behave and how people view us, they can look at your, your, uh, your life and see what you believe. We were just talking this morning, the memory verse from, uh, for the, the children's church out there is the one that says that, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, that uh, you show me your, basically when James is saying, show me uh, Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by works. You know, faith without works is dead, is the, the verse that they're looking at. And uh, the truth is that, you know, like we talked about this morning, is it's not that the faith, that your faith isn't what saves you. It's not that your works are what save you, but as a result of your faith, good works come from that. You know, and the Bible says that, that uh, they'll know us by our fruit and by our love for one another. You know, as you look at people, as you look at their lives, you should be able to tell that they're Christians. You know, and I've, I know we've all met people that on Sunday morning they're Christians, but for the rest of the week they just go back to doing whatever they were doing, and then they come back thinking they're getting right with God on Sunday. But the truth is, when you have that new life inside of you, it changes who you are and how you behave changes. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll look at uh, 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. <clears throat> you know, I love the Bible because they almost always teach in, in a way, I mean, the Bible is really simple to understand. The gospel is simple to understand and the, and the it's you know, you trust God, you make him the Lord of your life, and you were saved, you put your faith in him. But then the apostles teach, and Jesus taught in parables in these easy ways for us to understand what's going on. And he says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Now, we all understand how newborn babies work. I mean, they're pretty much just eating in poop factories. That's all they do is eat, 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 and they're longing for that milk because they need to grow. They need that nourishment so they can grow and become strong, healthy adults. And the truth is, a, a newborn baby, if you didn't feed it, would die, right? I mean, there's no confusion there. We're not all, none of us are, none of you just had a, really? If you don't feed a kid, it'll die? We all know that, right? And the same thing is true in our Christian life, that if, if you don't feed yourself with the pure milk of the Word, the pure spiritual milk, then you will die as a Christian. You'll begin to lose that faith that you have growing inside of you. And something else important to, notice, important to point out, it says long for the pure milk of the world. You know, we don't get to do this choose-your-own-religion thing. You know, there's this, uh, I'll have to find it and show it one morning, but there's this progressive church commercial. And you know how they have flow with the progressive uh, insurance commercial, and they go into, the, into that white room, and they pick out what they want for their insurance plan? Someone made a, a funny skit that shows, uh, it's like a, a progressive, the progressive church, and you walk into this white building, and you pick out the parts that you want of Christianity. That's not how Christianity works. We, we believe what the Bible says, and we don't get to pick what we want to follow. We need the pure milk of the word, not some, some watered-down, adultered milk of the word. Amen? 
And then it says that we should long for it. We're called to long for that. Spending time with other believers, spending time in the Word, getting fed by God. You know, we should, as a Christian, you should have a desire and a passion for that. You know, it's not something that you, you should, oh yeah, i got to do this today because it's just something I have to do. But you really should long to have that relationship with God. And then it says, well, what do we need to do to actually have that longing, to have that hunger for the Word of God? You've got to start putting aside some stuff. It's kind of like when your kids get into the junk food before dinner and they fill themselves on junk food, they're no longer hungry for dinner, right? Because they're full of something else. And the same here says, put aside malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. You know, malice is that desire to harm somebody. Do you have any thoughts that you want somebody to be harmed? I know nobody in this room does, but some Christians did. <clears throat> and deceit, you know, there were people who were being dishonest. And hypocrisy, to say one thing but to do another. You know, that's, that's one that uh, I think a lot of Christians get pegged with, right? We're, we're hypocrites. And the reason why that's the case is because a lot of us are. There's a lot of Sunday Christians. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but they sure as heck don't act like it. Envy is what wanting what somebody else has to the point of begrudging that person, wanting something so bad that, that if you can't have it, even they can't have it. You know, the Bible says we're to be content with what we have because Jesus is more than enough. And then it says, <clears throat> by doing this, by getting rid of all this stuff and longing for the pure milk of the world, we may grow in respect to salvation. Now, is he saying that you're going to become more saved as you become more invested in the Word? Absolutely not. When you accept Jesus Christ into your life, you are saved 100%. There is no half-saving, partial-saving. There's no, I have to do this. Jesus plus anything else is a problem. But Jesus by himself is everything. Jesus plus anything else is nothing. Jesus just by himself in your life. That's your salvation. That's, that's what makes you whole. So what does this mean that we may grow in respect to salvation? I like to think of it as my body catching up to what's going on already in my spirit, my, my will, my soul, my emotions, my, the life that I live catching up to what's been done to my spirit. You know, as we begin to live out who we really are, as we begin to live out who we are inside of us, when we begin to act holy because God has made us holy on the inside, and as we let Christ live his life through us, it begins to, to shine out from the outside. Amen. The problem that most Christians have is, is because they're not spending time in that pure milk of the word, because they're not spending time, they don't know who they are. They don't realize what's been done with them. They went to a, a service and, and you know, the Holy Spirit convicted them and they, they felt the Holy Spirit talking to them. And they said, you know what, I need to go up there and give my life to God. And they go up there and do it. And they, <clears throat> they go up and they give their altar call and they, they give God their life and then they walk away and, and nobody spends the time to disciple them or teach them or nobody spends it, or they don't spend the time themselves getting into the Word of God, learning about what just happened and, and it begins to slip away. They don't know that they're, that they're completely free from sin so they continue on sinning. They don't know that, that God's broken the bondage of that alcohol addiction or that drug addiction. So they keep on doing because they don't know that they're free. You know, a lot of people, their, their version of Christianity is only what they've learned on the TV. I know my young Christian life, a lot of, of who I thought God was was what, what, what I learned from the world, who, what the world God says, who, what the world said God was. And we all know that, that that's just not true. They don't know who God is. But we have the opportunity in the Word to find out who He is, find out that He loves us and He wants nothing but the best for us and that we are whole in Jesus' name. We are 100% well and healed. That by His stripes we have been made whole. That we are free from the bondage of sin and nothing in this life can take hold of us and drag us down. And that's what we learn from spending time in the Word. <clears throat> and... 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5, it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. And that's what he's talking about here. This living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
That's Christ. He is the cornerstone. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, 18, after Jesus said to Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> and then Jesus said to him, I also say to you that you are Peter, in verse 18, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You know, a lot of people misunderstand that verse to think that he's talking about Peter is this rock that they're going to build the church up on. And it's true that Peter was instrumental in building the early church, especially preaching as an apostle to the Jewish, to the Jewish culture. However, the rock that that is built on is that people knowing who Christ is, that he is the son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that the church is going to be built on. But then it says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You know, I was looking at, just thinking about a stone in a wall or a stone in a building. If you have a brick that's just laying off to the side, that brick is pretty much worthless. I mean, if you built the house and you stuck one brick out in front of it, I mean, you know, people can just walk around and get into your house. It's not offering any protection from anything. And that's the same way we are as living stones in the body of Christ. If we are just a stone sitting out in the front of the yard, we're not accomplishing our purpose. But as living stones, we fit together perfectly in the body of Christ, built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, and we fulfill our role. And together, as the body of Christ, we're incredibly powerful because of Christ Jesus. Amen. And then we find that in the, in the people in the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. The, the, the Levites were, the, were the, the tribe of the, the priesthood for the, the nation of Israel. And if anybody wanted to go through God, go see God, they had to go through these priests. But today, because Christ tore the veil, we are all a priesthood. Actually, each and every one of us are part of the priesthood, and we can go to God ourselves. We don't have to go through somebody else. We don't have to go through <clears throat> some person to see God because Christ died so that we could see God personally ourselves. So we are a royal priesthood, amen? And then it says we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, the reason why we can, we can offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God is because we can go through Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus. I think sometimes we forget what we're actually talking about when we pray. Have you guys, you guys ever pray and at the end of the prayer you say, in the name of Jesus, amen, but, but it's kind of just tacked on because that's what we always say. We don't really think about what's going on. What that means is when you go and stand before God with your prayers and you offer them, or you offer sacrifice of praise, or you offer anything to God, you're going in the name of Jesus as, as if Jesus were standing there himself. That's what it means that we go in the name of Jesus. And it's incredible that we've been given that gift and that authority that we can stand before God and speak to him ourselves in the name of Jesus. And what are these pleasing sacrifices that he's talking about? In Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. <clears throat> you know, before we got saved, we used our body for all kinds of stupid stuff, for sinful pleasures, sinful purposes. You know, we did, we did dumb stuff with our bodies before we got saved. But now that we got saved, you know, when, when you... When you came to God and said, you are the Lord and my Savior, you're the Lord of my life. You know, like we sang today, my heart is yours. You're giving yourself to God. Now your body is to be used for heavenly things. <coughs> Pardon me. Your body is to be used for heavenly things and for godly things because our body is his. In Romans 6.13 it says, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. <clears throat> you know, and then Hebrews 13.15-16 it says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. How many of you want to be pleasing to God? I know I do. I look at everything that he's done for me, <coughs> and I just want to bless him because of everything that he's done for me. 
So one of the ways we do that is we, we offer up a sacrifice of praise. Praising God is an offering to Him. When we sing in the morning, when we get up and we begin to worship God, that is one of our offerings to Him. So why is it a sacrifice? Why do they call it a sacrifice? Because sometimes you need to do it even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes when it's hard, you need to do it. Sometimes you need to do it in front of people that you might be embarrassed to do it in front of. You know, like I said at work, how many times has somebody heard you say, praise God when something goes your way? Are we embarrassed to say that? The truth is, sometimes it's a sacrifice to praise God. It's tough. It's hard. Sometimes you get up in the morning and the last thing you want to do is come to church on a Sunday morning and praise God. I know I felt like that before. Sometimes things just aren't right. You've got a stinking attitude and praising God is the last thing you want to do. You just want to be miserable and pout. But the truth is we need to praise God continually even so, no matter how we feel. And then he says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such a sacrifice God is pleased. You know, when we do good things in the name of Jesus, when we, we do righteous things for the kingdom of heaven, that's a sacrifice. God is pleased. I know everybody that came out here with us this morning, yesterday morning, to, to hand out flyers. I bet you could think of a hundred different things you'd rather be doing on a Saturday morning than walking around door to door, hanging stuff on strangers' houses in that heat. I can think of a few things that I'd rather be doing. It really, but a lot of things that I'd rather be doing than walking around in the heat. I don't even have to think long and hard about it. But the truth is that I know that I'm doing it for my God. And there's people around here that need to hear this word preached because they have no hope and they have no future without it. So as a sacrifice to God, I go out there and do good works and I share my testimony. I share what I have with others. Amen. <clears throat> And more about that cornerstone, 1 Peter 2, 6-8, through 8, as we continue on in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 6 it says, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Isn't that good news to know that if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed? This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. You know, he's actually quoting from uh, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. It says, Behold, uh, Isaiah 28, 16, pretty much says what he says there. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, will not be disappointed. The cornerstone is where it all starts. If you were to go out there and, and build a, uh, a house, or in those days they would build you know, large houses with the stone walls, the cornerstone is what sets the foundation of that house. If you set the cornerstone crooked or cockeyed or something weird, how many know the rest of the house is going to be all screwed up? <clears throat> the truth is that Jesus is our foundation. He is our cornerstone. And uh, this, this Greek word here that's being used, <clears throat> um, whereas who believes in him will not be disappointed, the Greek wording there being used has to do with the future. It has to do with looking forward, that if you believe in him, not only will you not be disappointed in the moment that you believe, but for the rest of your future, ongoing, you will never be disappointed for believing in Him. Amen? And what's interesting is the same stone that's a great value to us as believers is also a stumbling block to those who do not believe. You know, the, the thing is, is that the, Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jewish culture because they, they're not who... They expected him to be. In the fall of 1775, the manager of Biltmore's largest hotel refused lodging to a man dressed as a farmer because he thought this fellow's lowly appearance would discredit his inn. So the man left and took a room elsewhere. Later, the innkeeper discovered that he had just turned away none other than Vice President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Immediately, he sent a note to the famed patriot asking him to return and be his guest. Jefferson replied by instructing his, his messenger as follows. Tell him I have already engaged a room. I value his good intentions highly, but if he has no place for a dirty American farmer, he has no place for the vice president of the United States. See, the problem is that early Jews <clears throat> pushed Jesus away because he didn't fit 
what they thought that he was supposed to be. This, this uh, Baltimore hotel manager pushed the vice president, Thomas Jefferson, away because he didn't look like what he expected the vice president to look like. He came dressed as a farmer, but this guy thought the president should show up with gold cuffs and a suit and just looking all spiffy. But he didn't. He came and he looked like something other than he expected. And that's what happened with the Jews. They expected this mighty warrior who was going to save them from the Roman oppression. And he was going to be their king and free them from the governments that were oppressing them at the time. But Jesus didn't come like that, did he? Jesus came as a baby in a manger, as vulnerable as you can be. And he came to save not just from the government at a point in time, but he came to save us forever. But he wasn't what they expected. But now we know who Jesus is. Us, us here in the future, we know, we, we know what's going on. We, we know who Jesus is. We know that he's the Son of God. So that shouldn't be an issue for us today. We should understand who Jesus was and not have this same problem. But the truth is, even today, we don't know. There's many people in this world that don't know who Jesus is. They think he's something other than what he is. Now, if you watch TV to learn about God and learn about Jesus, all you would expect is that Jesus is waiting up in heaven with a big stick waiting for you to mess up so he can smack you across the shins. I mean, God is just waiting for so he can teach you a lesson. That's all God is up there for. You know, people still have a wrong idea of who Jesus is, and he's still a stumbling block of offense to them, a rock of offense. You know, they also think that Jesus is just this person up in heaven that wants to take away all their fun. He doesn't want them to have a good time. All he wants to do is make their life miserable and be a slave to him. And, and we know that's not true. Those of us who serve Jesus understand that that's not what it means. But he's a stumbling block of offense to them. And then finally it says, into this doom they were also appointed. You know, this doom that they're appointed to is their choice. But it's a lifetime separated without God. It's a lifetime in hell. And continuing on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, it says, But you are a chosen, a, chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, God chose us. We are a chosen, chosen. We, <laughs> we are a chosen race because God chose us. Do you, do you, do you understand the impact of, of God chose us? I mean, if you step back and think of who God created, the heavens and the earth, God created stuff that's so small that we can't physically see it with any technology that we have to suns that are bigger by order of magnitude larger than our sun that we could fit. There's, there's stars out there that we could take our earth and the number that, that I've heard used to describe how many of our earths could fit into these stars would be if you took a, a, <clears throat> a, a silver dollar and you laid it down flat across the entire state of Texas, it would still be this deep in quarters of how many Earths can fit in some of these stars. I mean, inches thick of quarters laid out across the state of Texas. Texas is larger than most countries. And that's how many... So God created some stuff so small that we can't even see it to stuff that big. But yet He still chose us. He cares about us. He loves us. And it's not because of the things we did. Thank God it's not because of the things we did because God would even look our way if it was based on what we did. He chose us because he loves us. And then not only that, he says he, he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He calls us because we couldn't do it ourselves. I was reading a story. It says, normally the flight from Nassau to Miami took Walter White Jr. only 65 minutes. But on December 5th, 1986, he attempted it after thieves had looted the navigational equipment in his beechcraft with only a compass and a handheld radio. Water flew into the skies, blackened by storm clouds, and when his compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded he was headed in the wrong direction. 
He flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something, but soon he knew he was lost. He put out a mayday call, which brought a Coast Guard Falcon search plane to lead him to an emergency landing strip only six miles away. But suddenly, Wyatt's right engine coughed and its, its last and died. The fuel tank had run dry. Around 8 p.m., Wyatt could do little more than glide the plane under the water. He survived the crash, but his plane disappeared quickly, leaving him bobbing on the water in a leaky life vest. 79, with blood on his forehead, Wyatt floated on his back. Suddenly, he felt a hard bump against his body. A shark had found him. He kicked the intruder and wondered if he would survive the night. He managed to stay afloat for the next 10 hours. In the morning, Wyatt saw no, air, saw no airplanes, but in the water, a dorsal fin was headed for him. Twisting, he felt the height of a shark brush against him. In a moment, two more bull sharks sliced through the water towards him, and he kicked the sharks, and they veered away, but he was nearing exhaustion. Then he heard the hum of a distant aircraft, and when it was within a half a mile, he waved his orange vest. The pilot dropped a smoke canister and radioed the cutter, Cape York, which was 12 minutes away, said, Get moving, cutter. There's a shark targeting this guy. As the Cape York pulled along walks alongside Wyatt, Jacob's ladder was dropped over the side, and Wyatt climbed wearily out of the water onto the ship, where he fell to his knees and kissed the deck. You know, they came and saved this guy. And this guy is just like people in the world. And the reason I say that is, is this guy, he didn't need more encouragement. He didn't need people saying, you can do it. Keep floating. Keep fighting. You can do it on your own. You didn't need people saying, you know, if you had just become a better swimmer, you wouldn't have a problem. If you had just taken better care of yourself, you'd be okay. Nobody said that if there's a will, there's a way. This guy needed help. This guy would have died had someone not reached out and saved him and dropped that, that ladder off the side of the boat, pulling him out of the water. He couldn't do it on his own. And in the same way in this life, the men and women of this world can't do it on their own. And no amount of self-help is going to help them make it through this life. No amount of training or practice or encouragement is going to push people through and get them into heaven. Into heaven. They need God's help. They need him to pull them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just like they reached out and pulled that, that uh, pilot out of the water. That's what people need. The problem is, is the world thinks that they can just save themselves. They can do it on their own. I actually had uh, uh, an old friend of mine tell me, he's, he's not Christian and very much against God, and, and his, his idea is that we can all be our own God and save ourselves, which we all know is, is absolutely ridiculous. When we try to do things on our own, we ultimately just fail. But I thank God now that as he's pulled us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we were given the identity of being his people. You know, that if you are saved, you are given the right to be the child of God. We are his people. And that is our new identity in him. And then finally it says, you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a story of a, of a judge who uh, was presiding over an area, and he grew up with a, with a friend of his in high school. And, and when they left high school, he, he moved on and became a judge. And his, his friend, his best friend in high school, moved on and did not do such great things. He was always getting in trouble. And finally, he did something uh, bad enough that it got him sent before the judge. And it turns out the judge was his friend. And everybody thought, because they were old high school friends, the judge was going to be lenient on him and let him off and let him get away with it. But the truth is, this judge... He, he, he threw the book at him. He, he gave him an incredibly heavy fine for what he had done. And everybody was amazed that, uh, that the judge had done what was right, had been righteous, and, and assigned the correct punishment for what had happened. But then an interesting thing happened. Right after it was done, the judge got off of his bench, and he took off his robes, and he walked up to the counter and pulled out his own wallet and paid the fine. You know, this judge was able to, to, to be righteous, and required that the payment be made. But then he walked around and paid the fine himself. And the same thing happened with God. You know, God didn't break any rules and just push our sin off to the side and ignore it. But the penalty was paid in Jesus. He said, no, the penalty, the wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. But after he put forth his sentence, he walked off the throne and paid the penalty himself. In Jesus, amen. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. 
And moving on, it says in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. This aliens and strangers we talked about last week, um, we're not of this world. We are members of the kingdom of heaven. We just happen to live in this world as aliens and strangers. It says, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, this whole thing here, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. I'm often, I remember when I used to work in restaurant, people in restaurant aren't known for their uh, godly ways. And, uh, you know, usually it's teenagers, they're going through college a lot of times. And anyway, I worked with a bunch of heathen. I was one not too long ago doing dumb stuff right alongside with them. But as I got out of it and I began to understand that there was freedom in Christ, as I began to try to speak to them and, and talk to them about it, you know, they, they, everyone had this idea that, that God just wanted to make your life, he wanted to take away all your fun. He didn't want you to have, you know, you can't go and sleep around or drink or do drugs or stay out all night and do stuff because he's just trying to steal your fun. And the truth is that the reason why God doesn't want you doing these things is because they're harmful to you. The Bible says that they wage war against your soul. They're trying to take away the very life which God has given you. <laughs> I was reading just a, a, a a hilarious story about this is young non-Christian man was repeatedly turned down for a date from a young Christian woman in kind of a mock exasperation because he'd asked her to go out, he'd asked her to go to concerts, he'd asked her to go to dinner, go drinking with him. And he says, in exasperation, he says, what do you do for fun? You don't dance, you don't drink, you don't attend rock concerts, what do you do for fun? And to the young man, she replied, for fun, I get up in the morning without feeling embarrassed, ashamed, and guilty about what I did the night before. You know, the truth is, particularly in this young lady's life, there's a lot more to fun in her life. He says that, uh, for example, she, this girl's now married to a fine Christian man. That's fun. And they have a little girl and are building an outstanding Christian home together. And she says, that's fun. She says, she's having fun every day living without the affliction of deep scars of fornication, drugs, or alcohol, and regrets from her past. It's fun getting ready each afternoon to receive a husband home from work knowing that he won't be stopping off at a local bar for a few drinks. It's fun knowing that while he was away from her, his, conduct, his Christian conduct won't allow infidelity or even flirting. And it's fun to watch him hold his little girl on his lap with his loving, protecting arms. It's fun knowing that their little girl will never see her father in a drunken stupor or experimenting with drugs. And it's fun living with an assurance that the home will be led by a spiritual leader who will guide each family member towards heaven. You know, our idea of fun has to change. And we understand that... that Living a Christian life isn't the miserable experience that, that many people want to make it out to be. And the truth is our behavior is the best testimony to our life-changing life events of salvation. Now, when I just went over those things of fun, I want you to know that if, if any of that stuff's happened in your life, that doesn't mean that you're doomed to failure, you're doomed to a miserable life. Thank God that... When you were born again, your past has been stripped from you. You have a brand new life inside of you. And that you can stand before God with a clear conscience and not have to worry about that stuff. You have been freed from those things. But let's continue living our life not doing any more things like that. So we can continue to live with that life. Amen. And he starts talking about... Uh, Keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, like I said, what we do in front of people is the best testimony of, of the change God has made in our life. And it says, so then the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, if we act like Christians, even if they slander us, it's going to be to their detriment eventually. And truthfully, the Bible says that uh, in Romans uh, 14.11, says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to the Lord. Everybody is going to bow before God one day. And when they slander you as a Christian for doing the right thing, but they say evil things about you regardless, they're going to be glorifying God for the way you acted someday. They're going to give God glory for your behavior. And I find that amazing. 
And now we're going to get into a, a touchy subject, submission. Everybody likes submission, right? 1 Peter 2, 13 through 20. Um, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and Gentile, gentle, sorry, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. You know, truthfully, submission <coughs> to local authorities is godly. You know, when you're driving out in the street and you're going 85 and a 35, you're not behaving godly. Submission to authorities is even obeying the speed limit. It's the only time that we should not submit to authorities is if it violates the word of God. But other than that, I mean, God says that these, all rule comes from God. All authority comes from God. God is not a God of chaos, but God is a God who wants, wants uh, rule and authority in this world. And it says that we are to, uh, to submit to that, to whatever they say. See, the problem was, is in this case, that Christians, and this time the Christians were being slandered. Christians were being wrongly accused, and they were actually being thrown in prison. They were being punished and these things. And uh, Peter said to submit and let your behavior silence their accusations. Such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Even if people are, are, and we don't see it much in this society, but there are other countries where Christians are being slandered and imprisoned for being a Christian. And I've been reading, there's a, there's a pastor in Iraq that's being imprisoned right now, and uh, he's, he's hurt, he's actually got internal bleeding, he's going through a lot of things, but what you don't hear stories about him trying to kill the guards to get out or fighting. He's doing what the Bible says to submit to the local authorities, and by his actions, he will silence the ignorant and foolish men at some point. And this freedom that we have in Christ doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want or we can use that freedom for evil or as a covering to do what we want. We're to use a freedom in Christ to honor God. You know, there's, there's people that, uh, to, that talk about, you know, now that we're free in Christ, we can, uh, you know, this grace that's been pushed too far to, the, to one side is that because we have grace, we can do whatever we want. We can sin. We can, have, we can do whatever we want because we're forgiven. But that's not what freedom is for. Freedom is not to do what you want. But freedom is so that you can be free from those things that used to pull you down. And then he says that we're to be... <clears throat> Uh, be submissive not to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You know, this is a tough thing to hear. But the truth is that somebody else's behavior is never an excuse for you to act with poor behavior. Amen? And then finally it says that <clears throat> when, you, uh, when you sin and are harshly treated, and harshly treated, what is that? You endure with patience. What is that? What does that mean? Everybody deals with that. People know that if you kill somebody, you're going to go to jail. Amen? Everybody understands that. But it says that when you do what is right and suffer for it, you know, have you ever had to suffer for something because you were honest? There's a, a young lady that I know that uh, she made a, uh, a poor decision at work. And uh, she did something that she wasn't supposed to do. And it was actually a really, really minor thing and, and kind of in my eyes but she finally you know she felt bad about it and and she went and told her boss about it and she lost her job because of what she had done now she had gotten away with it but she was honest she did the right thing she did the godly thing and she suffered for it but god says that this finds favor with god when you do godly things and you would suffer for them anyway amen aye, aye, aye. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. I'm going to try to start moving through these quite quickly because we're running out of time. So for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
While being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. You know, the purpose that we've been called to is to live, like he said earlier, without malice, deceit, envy, or hypocrisy. Living in submission to authority. That's what we've been called to do. And Christ is our example. Christ is the blueprint of how we're to live. Christ took on some incredibly difficult things. He died for our sins. He didn't deserve to die, but he did it for us. And he did not revile in return while he was being reviled. And while they were calling him names, he did not call him names in return. But he trusted himself to God, to him who judges righteously. He trusted his life to God. And in the same way as Jesus is our blueprint, we should be trusting our life to him. And what I find amazing is that he committed no sin, nor there any deceit found in his mouth. That means that we can live that way too. The Bible says in Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. When we have Christ in our hearts, if we keep our focus on him, we are able to live just like he did because it's his life living through us. If Christ lived sinlessly, so can we. Amen? Let's continue on here. <clears throat> We're going to get into First uh, Peter chapter 3. And this is some stuff the women in the room ought to really love. And it's talking about uh, submission as wives. First Peter 3, 1 through 6 says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of you... <laughs> Good, she just made it into the room for the best part. <laughs> in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that they, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on a dress. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. See, what's happening here is, is the reason why there's such a large section. And don't worry, we're going to get into the husbands next, just in case you guys thought you were getting out of it. But the reason why there's a larger section for the women at this point is, is the, these women are going through something they've never experienced before in their entire life. In Roman culture, women were, were held down. They were, they were put into submission to men forcefully. They didn't have the right to do all these things. In that time period, women were, were considered second-class citizens in a lot of ways. But now in Christ, they're realizing that they are free in Him and that they're equal with men. Matter of fact, down here, uh, later on, we'll see that... Uh, that they're fellow heirs in Christ. The God is no respecter of person. So what's happening is here is they're, getting, is they're probably getting a little out of hand, taking this freedom a little bit too far. So, so Peter is saying, all right, this is the godly way of doing things. But the first thing we have to understand is, is Peter tells them to be submissive to their husbands is that submission is not an evaluation of your worth. Women, you are just is equal in the sight of God as men are. There is nothing about women that makes them less or inferior in any way to men. The only difference is that there's, a, there's an authority structure in place. And God is the God of order. And the reason we have an authority structure is so that it, because there'd be chaos without it. You guys have ever uh, heard the expression, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen? That's what happens when you have too many leaders. Nothing gets done because everybody's button heads and thinks that, that things should go that way. Same way with me being the pastor of a church. I'm not better than any, any person in this room. I'm not more spiritual, more gifted. I don't have anything. The only difference is God has appointed me to this place to be a leader. In the same way, men are appointed in their family to be a leader in their family, and women are, are appointed to be, submit to them, to their, to their authority. This does not mean that, that uh, you are your husband's slave. This does not mean that he can tell you what to do and boss you around. That's not what's being talked about here. There's a, uh, uh, I was reading about a Hindu woman who was converted. And uh, chiefly by hearing the word of God read, she got converted. And then she was suffering all kinds of persecution from her husband. He was just being a jerk. And one day a missionary asked her, when your husband is angry and persecutes you, what do you do? 
She replied, well, sir, I cook his food better. When he complains, I sweep the floor cleaner, and when he speaks unkindly, I answer him mindly. I try, sir, to show him when I became a Christian, I became a better wife and a better mother. See, what happened in this story is that her husband eventually got saved. What no missionary could do by preaching to him, this woman with her her submissive attitude was able to convert him to Christ. And how many know her life is much better now when that case comes? You know, it says here that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives to any man that is disobedient to the word. You know, nagging, if your husband's doing stupid, is not going to fix the problem. But by living a godly life, he'll begin to see you and understand what's going on. And, and, and that'll have an impact on his behavior. And then it says... It starts going into this uh, adornment. It must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on a dress. What he's talking about is, is you don't win your husband's heart by doing what the world would do. How many know that if a woman wants to get a man in the world, she dresses all sexy, puts on a short dress and puts on her makeup and, and tries to, to win him over by sexuality or, or looking pretty or having enough stuff. But that's not how, how wives are to, to impress or win their husbands. They're supposed to, to live a godly life and that will make an impact in their life. And then going on to the husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7, says, You husbands, in the same way, live with, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Something I want men to know in this room, that you know, we, we've, a lot of times we all like to make jokes when we read these verses, and wives be submissive to your husband, and we think that we're on some sort of power trip. I want you to know that that because of that, you have a burden and a responsibility that your wife doesn't have. You are going to answer the decisions that you make in your family. And she has to answer for being submissive to you, but you have to answer for the decisions you make in your family. That is something that you need to really grasp and get a hold of, of your responsibility because of the position that you're in. Not because of who you are or what you did, but just because you're, you're, you're man. You're the spiritual leader of, of your house. In Ephesians 5, 28 through 30, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We're supposed to love our wives just like Christ loved the church. Anybody remember what Christ did for the church? He died for them. He gave everything so that they could live. It says, live with your wives in an understanding way. What that means is, is it's your responsibility to make sure that her needs are met. Not just physically or, or money-wise, but spiritually, emotionally. Are, are you being a good husband? Because that is your responsibility as a husband. And then it says, as with someone weaker. Now, this is one that no woman likes to hear, but all he's talking about is physically. He's not talking about spiritually. He's not talking about morally. He's not talking about intellectually. But statistically, and I think we can all agree, men are stronger than women. And that's what he's talking about here. It's taking care of your wife. But I want you to know that doesn't make a man better than a woman in any, any way. Matter of fact, it says that we are fellow heirs of the grace of life. It doesn't say women are secondary heirs. Amen? And the truth is that if you can't treat your wife right, it's going to impair your spiritual life. It says your prayers will not be, your prayer, live with them in this way so that your prayers will not be hindered. And if you don't, your spiritual life is hurt. The truth is, as a man, in my life, when, we, when I make decisions for our family, I consult with my wife. It doesn't mean that you get, you get to make decisions without talking to your wife. You're being an idiot if you act that way. Just telling you right now, if you, if you, if you think you want to run your household that way, you're just being stupid. Talk to your wife. Find out their input. A lot of times they're smarter than you are, so get their, get their opinion. Now, ultimately, the decision has to be made by you as a spiritual leader. And ultimately, it's the wife's responsibility to be submissive to that, to that, that decision. But truthfully, you're the one that answers to it. She just has to be answered to being submissive to you. You do something stupid, it's on your head. So, so be a wise leader. Consult with your wife. Work with your wife. You are a single unit and work together. Amen? If the husband ever says that I'll love her like that, I'll love her like Jesus when she submits, or the wife ever says I'll submit to him when he finally starts loving me like Christ loves the church, you guys are both wrong. 
The truth is, husbands, love your wives. And wives, submit to your husbands. Because God is a God of order. And that's how the, the, the structure has been set up. Amen? But I just want to make it real clear that doesn't mean that, <laughs> doesn't mean that men are better than women in any way. Amen? First Peter 3, 8-12, he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and to see, God, to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And if you're curious, Peter is quoting here from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. I always love it that when the, the apostles uh, preach. You'll know, at least in the New American Standard Bible, anytime they're quoting the Old Testament, it's in caps. So anytime you see the caps locks like this, they're quoting scripture. You know, and, and I love that because we should be following their lead. And when we're preaching to people and speaking to people, we should be quoting scripture. Amen. But Peter's talking here, this is the blueprint for godly living. And we make a choice to live this way. You know, it says here that, <clears throat> that we desire life. We, do, we desire to love and see good. We must keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. This is decisions that we make. And we're capable of making those decisions because of Christ inside of us. Amen? If you get saved, you can still do stupid things if you don't put your focus on him. But we make a decision to trust God. We are capable of doing all these things. Calvin Coolidge, was the, uh, when he was the vice president, he was presiding over the Senate, and a fight became, uh, rose up between two of the sinners. And tempers flared, and they started yelling at each other. And one of the senators finally says to the others, you can go to hell. So that senator storms down to, to Mr. Coolidge, and he says, <clears throat> did you just hear what he just said to me? And uh, the vice president looks up and says, and he says you know, I've been looking through the rule book. You don't have to go. The truth is the decision is ours if we want to go to hell or not. Amen? The law is summed up by love. Christ came to fulfill the law. And as such, our relationships are fulfilled by the law. In Romans 13, 8-10, it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We also read in the scripture that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Not a letter of the law will be pushed away, but Jesus actually came to fulfill the law. So Jesus inside of us is what fulfills the law. That love is what fulfills the law. Amen. How we treat one another, our relationships are fulfilled by love as well. Because Jesus inside of us fulfilled the law in us. Amen. And that fulfillment is love. So this blueprint of how we treat each other is to love one another. If we would just love one another, if that is what you can make your primary purpose is to love people, you will do everything that God wants you to do. Because anytime you look at somebody and you say, am I doing this in love or am I doing this for something else? If you're doing it because you love them, you're living a godly life. Amen? Two more. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, it says, Who is here to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, and for the sake of righteousness you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than from doing what is wrong. So he says that, who is here to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I've heard it said once that there is, if there is no God and you live like a Christian, then you have lost nothing. But if there is a God and you live like there isn't one, then you've lost everything. The truth is that if we prove zealous for good, who's going to hurt you for, for being a good person? Who's going to hurt you for, for, uh, for loving people? When you're at your job and you always do what is right and you always love people, who's going to hold that against you? Let's live like there's a God. Amen. 
And the truth is that even if somebody does, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do you remember when Peter and the apostles were flogged? Uh, and in Acts 5.41 it says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know, there is blessing and suffering for Jesus Christ. Even though it seems terrible at the moment, there's still blessing and suffering for righteousness. And then he goes on to say, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You know, you, we need to be ready when people ask, you know, why is it that you seem to never get sick? Or why is it that even though the economy is crashing around us, that you seem to be doing so well? Or why is it that when everything is going to the, to the toilet, you never seem to be bothered. Why is it that you never seem to be upset? Be ready to give an account for the hope that is inside you. Be ready to, to give your testimony, to tell people why you're okay, why you trust God and not this world. The Bible says be ready to be given account for the hope that is in you. And then finally, I just want to point out this, uh, this last verse because this is one that if you guys have heard me preach, you know that I preach that I don't believe it's ever God's will for you to suffer. God doesn't ever will for you to be sick. But we have verses like this that sometimes seem to be pointing in that direction. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Well, the first one, let's take a look at the verse in front of it. It says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you for good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. If we go back a few scriptures here. And it's always better to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Amen? It says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He's still talking about the suffering here, the persecution here. And it's the will of God that by doing right in that persecution that you would silence foolish men. And as we go back here, I think we're dealing with the same thing. That when we are slandered, those who reveal in your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Because it's God's will for you to do right, even in the suffering. I don't believe it's God's will for you to suffer. But it is God's will for you to do right, even when you're in suffering. So that, you can, that your good behavior, your behavior will actually impact other people around you. Amen? And finally, the last verse we're going to look at today. Uh, the last uh, couple verses in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 is verses 18 through 22. It says, for, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ died for sins once and for all. You know, we need to understand that that wasn't just for Christians. That was for everybody, the just and for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Christ died and paid the penalty for sin for everybody in this world. It's not unique to Christians. It's not unique to a certain subset of people. But Christ died for everybody, no matter who they are. And they're paid for. They're done. Sin is not an issue to God anymore. The issue is, do we trust God? Do we believe Him? Do we put our faith in what He did? Amen? It says, But made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made a proclamation to the spirits not in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to the baptism, now, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Next thing I want to point out in these scriptures is baptism now saves you. It's another one of those, if we read it and we take it out of context, we begin to think that you have to be baptized to be saved. And the truth is that baptism doesn't save you. And he actually goes on to say here that it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh that baptism accomplishes. What he's talking about, your, your eternal salvation, salvation in your soul comes from, from your believing in Christ. That's what gives you a new spirit inside of you. But what baptism does for you, and, and like I've told you before, in those days, baptism was their altar call. When, when we would come out, people come up and say, you know, say the prayer to receive Jesus into their life, that's what they did with their altar call. And in that moment, as they associated themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they were given a clean conscience because they were saying that the old me is dead and gone. It was buried with Christ. And as they raise up out of the water, they have a new life. He says that the, the baptism 
is an appeal to God for a good conscience. When we come up into our altar calls and we say that, Lord, you are the Lord of my life. I give you my heart. I give you everything. That Christ died for my sins and I'm now a new person in you. That's the same thing that we do now. That is our appeal for a good conscience. We separate who we were away from us and we accept that brand new, fresh life that Christ has given us. Amen. And it says he's at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The authority and reason for our clear conscience is because of the work of the one who now sits at the right hand of God. He is the name of all, above all names, and that's Jesus. And as such, he is the, the prime authority, he is the end authority. You know, that's why we can come to God with a clear conscience, knowing that we've been saved and we've been made brand new. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet and we'll bow our heads.